Can you imagine somebody coming in and redrawing your boundary lines without asking you about it? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ever wonder about the lines on the map of Africa being so straight, given that nations within that continent do not always conform to those exceptionally neat divisions? Turns out the people who actually live there were not consulted. Over a hundred years ago, there was something called the Scramble for Africa, in which the great imperial powers of Germany, England, France, Belgium, and even Spain and Portugal divided the research-rich continent for their own greedy interests. The people actually affected be damned. They want it. They're taking it. It's theirs. Then came the First World War, which all the belligerents swore was not for colonial expansion. Hmm. President Woodrow Wilson claimed the moral high ground by insisting on self-determination for the defeated nations. Well, that lofty principle was dashed in the end, when sure enough the great powers drew arbitrary lines in the sand, sometimes quite literally, as with the infamous Sykes-Picot line, which mapped out Arab nations to serve the European winners of that war. Arab nations still sometimes violently resist that 100-year-old division forced on them against their will. Thank goodness those days of ugly colonialism are gone. Well, guess what? They're not exactly gone. Our guest today, Stephen Kinzer, brought to our attention a stunning current imposition of a new map in that much-fought-over continent. His new article is titled, Trump and Pompeo Redraw the Map of North Africa, with the bizarre, presumptuous tweet, the United States hastily declares a winner in that complex conflict. Stephen Kinzer, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Steve Kinzer is a senior fellow and an American author, journalist, and academic, former New York Times correspondent, published several books, writes for several news outlets. During the 1980s, Stephen Kinzer covered revolutions and social upheaval in Central America and wrote his first book, Bitter Fruit, about the military coups and destabilization in Guatemala during the 1950s. Kinzer was New York Times chief in the newly established bureau in Istanbul from 1996 to 2000. He's written several nonfiction books about Turkey, Central America, Iran, and the U.S. overthrow of foreign governments from the late 19th century to the present, as well as Rwanda's recovery from genocide. Kinzer also contributes to columns uh, contributes columns to the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, The Boston Globe. He's senior fellow in international and public affairs at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Not a bad curriculum, Vitae. Well, thanks again for being with us. You write that during the days of classic imperialism, world leaders sometimes change the map of the world with a few strokes of the pen. This month, for the first and perhaps last time, it happened with a tweet. Tell us, please, what just happened to the map of Morocco and the Western Sahara? The Western Sahara is one of those places that um, very few people have ever heard of, but that suddenly pop up on our geopolitical radar screen. 
I'm just thinking about that war that happened a few months ago in Nagorno-Karabakh. That that might yes. be a comparable place. Uh, people might have a vague memory of having heard the phrase, but they can't quite place it. Western Sahara might be something like that. So Western Sahara is sometimes called the last colony in Africa. Um, it's a large region on the uh, western coast of Africa, also on the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Um, and... It has an interesting history. So in the mid-1970s, it was a Spanish colony. Mm -hmm. Spain was then going through the end of the Franco dictatorship. And amidst all of that shaking in Spain, it suddenly granted independence to the Western Sahara. All the details were not spelled out. Uh, immediately, two countries that bordered on the Western Sahara, uh, Morocco and Mauritania, claimed it. They both started uh, fighting and decided they should have it. Mauritania then later on uh, relinquished its claim. But Morocco has not relinquished its claim. It still claims Western Sahara. And there is a local sort of liberation movement, if you want to call it that. So yes. a, a government of its own called the Polisario yes. Front. Mm -hmm. And so there's your two contenders for control over Western Sahara. Should it be the Polisario Front, which is recognized as legitimate by many organizations, including the European Union and the African Union, or does Morocco have a right to own that territory? This has been the question ever since the 1970s. So yes. what just happened? Uh, that conflict has been in a nice phase of suspended animation for a number of years. Uh, there's been a kind of a unspoken truce. About 80% of the land is controlled by Morocco, 20% by the Polisario Front. Nobody's happy, but nobody's getting killed. So it seemed to have been in a kind of a calm state. Then suddenly, the United States announced out of the blue, uh, we now recognize Western Sahara as part of Morocco. And, and, and the American ambassador there actually got up and signed a new map that shows Western Sahara as Morocco, which means that Morocco is now 50% as big as it was last month, at least in the eyes of the U.S. State Department. Amazing. How, how legitimate is this new map? And what is the reaction of other nations to this uh, uh, map change by tweet? Other countries have not followed along. Uh, there was a, a great expression of hostility on the part of uh, the country that supports the Polisario Front the most, which is Algeria. This could heighten tensions between Algeria and Morocco quite seriously okay. with unpredictable consequences. Algeria is not about to give up on supporting the Polisario Front. Just the fact that the United States stepped into this is not going to be considered decisive. So although it doesn't radically change things on the ground, it could definitely lead Morocco to be more adventurous and say, well, if the United States has certified us as the owners of this vast territory, uh, we're just going to go in and, and take it all over. That would certainly set off uh, an explosion of violence. And so why did Trump and Pompeo do this? What, I mean, what the heck? It's a very odd uh, move. And it can only be understood in the context of another project mm -hmm. on which Trump and Pompeo are embarked uh, in their last months in office. They've got this project of trying to get as many Arab countries as possible to extend formal diplomatic recognition to Israel. 
And so they've gone around to several Arab countries and asked them, what do you want? What, what could we give you? What could we do for you as an exchange that would lead you to do what we want, which is recognize Israel? And when they got to Morocco, the Moroccans said, essentially, would you recognize us as the owners of Western Sahara? And so that essentially was the deal. Uh, if they recognize Israel, which they apparently are about to do, uh, we will recognize them as the owners of Western Sahara. So the United States didn't gain anything out of this. There's no strategic value to the United States. You could argue there's a value to Israel in the Middle East, uh, but uh, there's no political interest of the U.S. that was served by this decision. Except, I suppose, the uh, uh, the base, which is... Uh, uh fervently pro-Israel. Israel can do no wrong. They love Netanyahu and the, the far right wing. Uh, I don't know. They have this uh, tremendous allegiance to the state of Israel. So perhaps, I mean, far be it from Trump to play to his base, but it sounds like that's probably what he's doing. I think it's certainly a, a major part of his calculation. So I think both Trump and Pompeo want to play to a base of people in the United States, and not just a mass base, but really a base of large donors uh, yes. uh, who uh, are going to cough up large amounts of money to candidates they think are especially sympathetic to Israel. So if Trump and Pompeo can go to those donors in preparation for a possible presidential campaign in 2024 and say, look what we did for Israel, in mm -hmm. the last month that we were in office, that could be highly beneficial. And I would ha hasten to point out that um, although some of those traditional donors who are wealthy and, and uh, make donations based on people's uh, candidate positions toward Israel are Jewish, like uh, Sheldon Adelson, who has given tens of millions of dollars to Trump, in fact, uh, the identity of large donors uh, and supporters of political candidates who are strongly pro-Israel has become less and less Jewish. It's yes. more the evangelical Christians now yes. who are the base to which uh, Pompeo and Trump could appeal and say, we did all this for Israel. In the old days, there was a time when you did this mainly to appeal to Jewish political donors and Jewish voters. That's changing. Right. It's evangelical Christians now who are forming a lot of the political base uh, that is at stake and that uh, the search for which might be motivating decisions on the other side of the world, like what's going to happen to the Western Sahara. That's the odd thing about this, yeah. that something that has to do with American politics in the 2024 campaign and certain evangelical voting blocks winds up changing the entire geopolitical calculus in a conflict on the other side of the earth that seemed to be now in a state of suspended animation. And because of this project, this new decision, uh, you know, could be upset in, in a process that could lead to violence. Oh, violence. Yeah, he doesn't mind that. That's for sure. But all right. The Western Sahara, I, I'm sure I've well, in fact, I've never been to Africa at all. What is the Western uh, Sahara? Apparently it does border the ocean, but isn't it not huge and largely empty desert? Why, why does Morocco want it? Is it just to beat the Polisaro? Uh, huge and empty desert is a pretty good description. Uh, if you can imagine a country the size of Britain 
with the population of Boston, mm. that's that's the Western Sahara. And most of the people are living just in a few towns. Sure. Several hundred thousand have fled. Uh, they're living in refugee camps in Algeria because uh, Moroccan rule is is quite harsh. Uh, but mm. why would mm. Morocco want this territory? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, as you say, it's just size. It increases their size by more than half and makes them intrinsically uh, more powerful for that reason. But there are also, as there always are in these cases, resources at stake. Mm -hmm. And there are two of them in particular. One is fishing rights. There's a long coast along the Atlantic on the Western Sahara. And not only can fishing boats use that, uh, that resource, but even better, they rent out or sell rights to foreign countries to uh, fish in those waters, and that brings in a lot of hard currency. So that's a valuable source of income. But even more important is uh, a particular resource that you find in the Western Sahara, which is phosphates. So hmm. phosphates, you don't even need to know about if you don't study the Western Sahara, but it turns out that phosphates are a key ingredient to fertilizer. And as such, they are absolutely vital to the world food supply because unlike nitrogen, which is the other ingredient of fertilizers, they cannot be synthesized. You have to dig it oh, out of the wow. ground. And this is the phosphate-rich part of the world. If Morocco <laughs> can control, establish control over Western Sahara, it will control 70% of the world's phosphates, whereas China, for example, controls 5%. So that's a big potential uh, resource and uh, certainly, I think, uh, one reason why Morocco would be most <laughs> eager to consolidate its control of Western Sahara. Don't tell me it has something to do with money. Oh, my goodness. What a surprise. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Stephen Kinzer about uh, a new map that has just been drawn rather arbitrarily by uh, Trump and Pompeo giving Morocco uh, the Western Sahara. And you mentioned China. China is deeply involved in developing African nations with this Belt and Road program. I wonder how African nations in the world sees this drawing of a new map on a whim. And are we competing with China directly? Has China said anything about this? China has a particular attitude towards conflicts like this. It's very consistent. The attitude is, we don't care. <laughs> uh, I hear this often from people uh, from China who say this is the greatest difference between their foreign policy and ours. Uh, the, the Chinese will say something like this. Uh, if there's a war going on between two countries on the other side of the world, we don't care. If there's a dictator who's being mean to his own people and brutalizing them, we don't care. Uh, All we're interested in is making deals that are good for our own country. We don't care what goes on over there. So you won't find China picking a little conflict on the other side of the world and saying, OK, we're on this side. Uh, they realize that every time you make a new friend in the world, you also make a lot of enemies. Uh -huh. By making this decision, the United States just turned the Polisario front and many of its supporters around the world into an enemy. That was totally unnecessary. China does not create enemies for itself unnecessarily, but we just did. <laughs> Uh, I laugh, but it's terrible. And the Polisario, you know, I remember vaguely from the 70s that there was some kind of a, a war there, but uh, they, I, it had pretty much been resolved, I, I think. And uh, tell us a little bit more about the Polisario. The Polisario Front is the uh, representative 
of local people, a local ethnic group that lives in what is now called the Western Sahara. And they have an active diplomatic presence in many capitals around the world. Ah. As I said, they have recognition uh, at various levels from the European Union, the African Union, and the United Nations. None of those groups recognizes Moroccan sovereignty over that region. Um, so the Polisario Front has existed now for almost half a century. It's a very well-established movement. And it um, is not just so it's military as well as political. Now, in recent years, uh, it hasn't been uh, military at all. Mm-hmm. It's been uh, s- some years since there's been any military conflict at all. But the danger now is that this kind of delicate balance right. is going to be upset by the United States suddenly charging in and perhaps emboldening Morocco and changing a calculus on the ground that had kept the peace up until now. Uh, so I can imagine they might do some fundraising, the Polisario, Polisario and uh, get some support for it. From uh, I mean, are they left of center? And tell I don't know anything about the Moroccan government, actually. It's, it's an interesting constellation uh, in the terms of the Polisario Front. Um, you know, they started out as a national liberation movement in the 1970s. And this was a time when the United States hated those kinds of movements. They they were seen as enemies of our imperial friends. Uh, And sure enough, the Polisario Front, for example, was strongly supported by Fidel Castro in Cuba. It considered itself part of that sphere. Uh However, many years have now passed. um, And for a variety of reasons, um, the Polisario Front has been embraced by people on the American right wing, really? including John Bolton and um, wow. Jim Inhofe, the right wing senator from Oklahoma. In fact, there have been reports published that I've now read in recent days saying that the re- one reason that Trump t- made this decision was because Jim Inhofe, the senator from Oklahoma, Um, is a great Polisario supporter, and Trump is angry at this Inhofe for not um, standing with him in uh, saying that the election result was fraudulent. Therefore, just to show his peak at this senator, he decides, oh, I, I know he loves that Polisario front. Let me see if I can poke a stick in their eye. So that may also have been a factor. You, you know, you can't make this stuff up these days in Washington. <laughs> the pettiness is just astounding. And yet, I, who knows how many people over the years have died because of petty uh, uh, kings and, uh, and prime ministers. It's happened so many times. And... Uh, there, I, I remember, uh, of course, uh, Trump telling the president of Ukraine that uh, much sought after military aid would be coming, but only after they did us a favor. Am I wrong to see some similarities there? It, there's always uh, the possibility of countries exchanging favors, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. If you do a favor for us, we could do a favor for you. But the favors should result in some benefit to you. So this is a favor that we do without receiving any benefit at all. Uh, That's the way I I judge this. I I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with diplomatic trade-offs. But all diplomacy should be based around one principle, which is to advance the interests of your own country. What do we get out of this? We get nothing. We bought ourselves some new enemies. And we did some political favors that might help some 
candidates here in the United States, but that has nothing to do with our position in the world. As far as our position in the world goes, uh, we just further undermined our own long-term security, which is something we've been doing for some years now. Yeah, we do seem to specialize in that. It's it's remarkable. All the hundreds of billions of dollars we spend on it, and yet we continuously make things worse by doing apparently dumb things like this. And I noticed Sudan was recently taken off that list of state sponsors of terrorism. Tell us, please, about the Trump-Pompeo strategy in the Arab world. And, and has, has Sudan changed that much so that they're... What, what about them being on that list of uh, state sponsors of terrorism? The Sudan change, that is the change in U.S. relations with Sudan, is very much related to the change in U.S. relation with Morocco. Sudan was another one of those Arab countries that we went to in recent months and asked, what can we do for you in exchange for you recognizing Israel? Mm -hmm. And uh, Sudan said, our problem is that we cannot access international loans uh, because you have placed us on your list of countries that support terrorism. So could you take us off that list? And uh, the Americans said, yes, we will. So that's what happened. Uh, now, Sudan is not doing anything in the world now that it wasn't doing a few years ago. And it's not refraining from doing anything that it was doing. So it hasn't changed its behavior. It's just that the United States found it uh, somehow mm -hmm. uh, diplomatically uh, wise to take it off this list. And that shows how bogus that list is. That is not really a list of countries that support terrorism. It's a list of countries that we want to demonize. Right. So we say they support terrorism. And this is a particularly timely observation because uh, we are at this moment in the process of placing Cuba on the list of countries that support terrorism. What? And that has nothing to do with Cuba's behavior. It only has to do with us wanting to do something mean that will make Cuba look bad. <laughs> And and the Saudi government. I mean, we are best buddies with the Saudi government, but it seems to me from from lots that I've read, they they're pretty uh, pretty awful, really. So I mean, terrorism. It's I guess in the eyes of the beholder. Can the United Nations do anything about this? Has there been any reaction there? Not that it matters particularly, but uh, the UN has uh, essentially insisted that it's not changing its policy as a result of the U.S. changing its map. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as I wrote in my column, this is a kind of a great American impulse that we can uh, redraw a map and then the, that's the way it is. And yeah. Everybody has to fall in line right after us. But in fact, uh, that isn't the way it is. Uh, we've gotten used to dominating the world and being so central yeah. to global politics that uh, we can't imagine that ever changing. The idea of us being active in the world without dominating the world is something very difficult for many in Washington to grasp. And I think this is an example of how we make a great dictate. We decide something big in the world, which is the Western Sahara now belongs to Morocco. But it doesn't mean as much as it would have meant at one other time in American history. And we have to get used to that. Yes. It would be good if we could uh, be better uh, neighbors in the world, in my opinion, and not have to control and dominate. But Trump has said that, you know, he decides what's right by who dominates. Biden is incoming, and he's talked about continuing American leadership in the world. What's your sense of, is there anything Biden can 
can do or is likely to do? What's your sense on this? Or will he even notice it? When it comes to the Western Sahara, I have to say that um, it's got to be pretty far down on yeah. Biden's list a- of foreign policy challenges. Uh, and then there's another reason I think that would militate against him doing something dramatic, like getting up and saying, we don't recognize that. We're going back to supporting the UN and the African Union and the European Union position. And that is, you already irritated Algeria, which is a very important ally uh, and is the big supporter of the Polisario Front. Now, if you change your mind, you're angering Morocco also. Mm. So you're just getting them angry again. Maybe the best way to do it would be to kind of shrug it off and just make sure Morocco does not take this action as an encouragement to change the status quo on the ground. That, I think, is something Biden can do. But I would not expect Mm. him to get up and just uh, repeal it. I think in that sense, uh, at least it'll stay on the official maps of the State Department. What's changed is that the official map of the State Department doesn't automatically become the map that the rest of the world uses. (laughs) And and certainly in the United States, there are a lot of people who are more interested in in what's going on in Africa now, African, uh, you know, unity groups. I wonder if they might be expected to do anything about that to pressure members of Congress or maybe, again, they have a lot on their plate as well. Yeah, United States policy toward Africa is very sporadic and in recent years been largely military. Uh, we have military operations in a number of African countries, and we don't really have concurrent political projects going. There isn't a real Africa strategy from Washington. Uh, We're caught up in a little bit of the old foreign aid mentality, which has never worked. And I don't think there's been enough focus. But actually, um, it's not out of the uh, uh, mainstream to suggest that Africa is the continent of the 21st century. The takeoff hasn't quite begun yet, but there's every possibility that Africa is going to be a very dynamic center of the world in the decades to come. And it would behoove us to pay more attention. Yeah, and kind of get along with them, perhaps. I mean, the resources that are there, oh my goodness, they're nowhere else, and they're extremely important for our technological uh, development. So we could do a lot better, I would think. The way to do it would, of course, be to try to cooperate with groups there that want to establish rule of law, non-corrupt societies, and societies that implement a modicum of social justice. Hmm. There are those societies out there, and the United States needs a new a new look at Africa. And let me tell you, China is focused yes. on Africa. We aren't. Yes. And uh, China is onto something that we haven't quite picked up on yet, which is the dynamic future of Africa. Absolutely. Well, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. And if people are interested in uh, following your work, just Google Stephen Kinzer, I guess, unless you have other suggestions. I've got a website, so it's stephenkinzer.com, and all my Boston Globe columns and interviews and so forth uh, are accessible there. Thank you so much. Perhaps we can learn from history, but we never do seem to learn from history, you know? We're doing our best. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you. After some current Moroccan music, we're going to talk about a previous occupier of Morocco, Spain, and the legacy of fascism. Stay with us.
old enough to remember 1975 (laughs) easy uh when saturday night live started back in 1975 the spanish dictator francisco franco had finally died after 40 brutal years in power common on weekend update was the news that franco is still dead as if everyone needed to be reminded that his remarkably long bloody and repressive implacable regime really was over But as we approach 2020, the question once again is, is Francoism dead? Is democracy solid in a post-Franco Spain? A measure of that actually resides in the status of the corpse of the dictator. What? How can the stability of democracy in Spain have anything to do with the long-dead guy? With us to dissect perhaps not the best word, the rather huge and highly significant news surrounding the status of Franco's body is Sebastian Faber. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Sebastian Faber has a doctorate from the University of California, Davis. He's professor in the Department of Hispanic Studies at Oberlin College. Sebastian is the author of Exile and Cultural Hegemony, Spanish Exiles in Mexico, Anglo-American Hispanists, and the Spanish Civil War and Memory Battles of the Spanish Civil War. He regularly writes for The Nation, La Maria, Fronterdad, uh, and CTXT, Contexto y Acción. A former chair of the Board of Governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, where I served with him for many years, he co-edits, together with Peter Carroll, uh, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade uh, Archives quarterly magazine, The Volunteer. Well, historical memory is highly important for a country's identity and future. In this case, it has a major impact on the survival of Spain's relatively new democracy. How Generalismo Franco is remembered today is a thunderstorm of high controversy at this moment across Spain. 
Well, Sebastian, where is the body of Franco now? And what? tell us about the unanimous ruling Spain's Supreme Court just handed down with regard to Franco's body. Well, Bert, um, Franco's body is still currently interred where it was buried um, soon after he died in 1975 which is in the Valley of the Fallen. The Valley of the Fallen is a large monument about an hour outside of Madrid that Franco had built over about 20 years' time uh, with the help of um, forced labor by um, prisoners from the Civil War, Republican prisoners. And that uh, monument, officially to the Fallen um, in, in the Civil War, was inaugurated in 1959. And centrally buried in it at that time, or, or soon after its inauguration, was the body of the founder of the Spanish fascist party, José Antonio Primo de Rivera. Now, when Franco died in November 75, it was decided that he should also be buried centrally in that um, monument, which is really kind of a, a large basilica hewn into live rock on top of um, Interlife Mountain, basically, and on top of which is a sta stands a huge concrete cross. And Franco's body has been in there, in in the middle of that big space, uh, ever since he died. And um, it continues to be something of a site of pilgrimage for those nostalgic of his regime. Traditionally, every 20th of November, which was the anniversary of both, both his death and that of José Antonio, um, Francoists or neo-Francoists would come to the Valley of the Fallen and, and celebrate um, Franco and his regime. Um, they still do so, even though it's officially now forbidden by law. Now, the, um, the decision by the Spanish Supreme Court was to uh, allow a government decision to go ahead to move his body to another location. The government, the social, current socialist government of Madrid, made this decision last year, that it was about time to um, move the body of the dictator because what advanced democracy has a huge monument with the body of a former dictator right in the middle of it. Um, but the Franco family uh, opposed that measure, um, claimed they didn't want the body of their, um, of, of their family member, Franco, sure. moved. So it went through the courts, ended up on the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unanimously decided that it's fine to move the body. So it'll be moved to another location that hopefully is less um, attracts less attention. So symbolically, it's a very important uh, measure, this, and, and reaction in Spain were appropriately strong, um, strongly in favor uh -huh. for most of the country and most of the left. The center-right center um, said, well, you know what, we don't care that much about the past. Um, either way, whatever. Oh. Oh, and the extreme right was indignant. They said, this is a desecration of a tomb. This can't happen. So it's, um, it's, been, a, it's been a big deal in Spain. It's been a symbolically a, 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 an important decision. Could this have the effect of, of uh, gathering strength for the extreme right, the, uh, the, the Vox Party? Uh, could it be something that unites them and, and fires them up? I kind of doubt it. Um, just for your listeners' sake, uh, Vox, V-O-X, mm -hmm. is, is a relatively new party on the um, extreme right of the political spectrum. Uh, it's only uh, five or six years old, and it's only gained parliamentary representation in the, in the national parliaments in Madrid uh, last year. So it's a, it's a fairly new party. Um, 
In the polls currently, they stand to lose a little bit of the seats that they won. Um, Spain is moving toward yet um, new parliamentary elections, the fourth yeah. parliamentary elections in four years. Those will happen in November. And I, I don't think um, this particular decision will do much to rally their base. Oh, that sounds good. I'm, I'm glad for that. So wh- what is the plan to do with uh, the body of the former dictator? Where, what cemetery or where are they going to put it? He's going to be moved to a, a family plot, which it's still actually still a public space, but much less prominent. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so it's 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 for sure a demotion in terms of symbology. <laughs> um, at, at one point in in the midst of this controversy, the family said, "All right, if you want to move the body, then where we want it buried is in in a, in a cathedral, in the biggest cathedral in Madrid." Yeah. Um, and this would, of course, be defeating the purpose altogether because that is an even an easier spot to visit for either tourists or 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 um, those nostalgic of Franco. So, fortunately, that measure was um, not allowed for ultimately for security reasons. It was not it was deemed not not a valid place, not a, a, an appropriate place to rebury him. But um, but another what what the. Um, but this decision and, and these, the, the final the moving of the body, which hopefully will happen soon, yeah. um, underscores, on the one hand, is Spain's um, continuing progress in, in dealing with this complicated past of a three-year civil war and an almost 40-year dictatorship that ended in the mid-1970s. On the other hand, it also underscores how much is still to be done, how long the laundry list is of unfinished business when it comes to the legacy of Francoism and the Civil War. I'll just, if, if you allow me, I'll just point out a couple of, of, kind of big issues, items on that list. Yes, please do. Um, if, if we just mentioned the Franco family and its opposition to moving the body. Well, the Franco family um, has an estimated um, estate, an estimated fortune of, that some people put at 600 million euros. Uh, which mm-hmm. is about uh, seven or eight hundred million dollars, yeah. I think, at the current Something exchange like rate. Yeah. This was a fortune amassed by Franco and his family in the course of the Civil War, and especially the dictatorship. And at no point um, has that fortune ever been officially investigated, let alone has there been any attempt for the state, the Spanish state, to force the Franco family to return any of that money. Um, another big item on that laundry list of unfinished business is the um, tens of thousands of bodies of um, Spaniards killed in the Civil War by the Franco side, whose bodies are still strewn through the country in unmarked mass graves, and up to 30,000 of which are actually buried in that same monument where Franco still currently lies and where he's going to be moved from. There, too, the Spanish state has not assumed its responsibility with regard to these people, which are really disappeared people. So by international um, law and international treaties that Spain has signed, it's always the state's responsibility in cases of forced disappearance to try to locate the the disappeared, and, and if it turns out they have died and they're in unmarked graves, to identify those graves, to exhume the bodies, to identify the bodies, and, ret- and return them to their families. 
Um, the Spanish state has never assumed that responsibility yet. Uh, and then there's a whole slew of other kind of legacies of Francoism, the most prominent of which is the monarchy itself. So when Spain became a democracy in the late 1970s, it became a parliamentary monarchy. Mm-hmm. And um, but but the 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 restoration of the monarchy was a measure um, implemented by Franco himself. So Franco had per, the the provision that Franco had made for um, his own death was that after his his death, the grandson of the late last king uh, who had left the country in 1931 would be restored to the throne, and he has been. And currently, his son um, Philip VI is is um, is the head of state officially in Spain. Mm-hmm. But the whole institution of the monarchy was, in fact, instituted um, by Franco. Oh, wow. um, and it's no coincidence that those who um, have doubts about the way to the transition to democracy was uh, managed in Spain tend to have strong Republican sentiments. That is to say, they want Spain to be a, rep- a republic, just like, yes. let's say, France is. Yeah. Um, and it's also no coincidence uh, that, for example, in a region like Catalonia, um, the support for the monarchy and the, hmm. let's say, the um, the grade on the report card that um, people in Catalonia give to the current king is very, very low. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Spain, you know, and, and, and I don't know, some people think, oh, why bother with history? It's the past. It is not the past. It is happening right now and for the future. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, Sebastian Faber about uh, the moving, potential moving, likely moving of a dead dictator's body and what that means for democracy in Spain. And Spain has a uh, a relatively strong democracy right now, whereas uh, much of Europe is is facing, uh, you know, nationalist uh, rise of, of dictatorships. And uh, so democracy in Spain is uh, it's. Something that that's very important, I think, in terms of uh, world politics. Now, in terms of uh, well, democracy and government. Now, the the current prime minister of Spain is Pedro Sanchez. What? Did, who who is he, and what did he say about the ruling of the court that uh, he should be taken out of this place of of honor? It, um, the Socialist Party, which is Pedro Sanchez's party, was thrilled with the decision because it, they had uh, proposed a measure to move the body. It was. Um, it was their their idea, um, and, and and that idea had the support of the active support of the left wing of the Spanish Parliament, um, whereas the two major right wing parties, which are the Popular Party and the Citizens Party, abstained from voting um, in in that decision. So the Socialist Party was thrilled. Um, to what extent the Socialist Party and the current Prime Minister are willing to address the other unfinished business that I just of which I just mentioned some uh-huh. some items is um, is a is a big question, and we'll see what happens in the elections next month or in November, um, and see how much of um, of the legacy of Francoism uh, these established parties are willing to tackle. Some of these issues are really complicated. Um, just to give you one example. Um, one big gripe of the of the memory movement, which is the grassroots movement that has been uh, that was born in Spain about twenty twenty some years ago, yeah. that has really been pushing uh, for the country to address these legacies. And 
uh, it's this movement that should be credited with applying so much pressure that the government decided to move Franco's body finally. Uh, but among its gripes is the fact that um, all of the um, uh, jurisprudence, all of the um, judicial, all of the sentences that were issued by Francoist courts uh. um, criminalizing the opposition to the Franco regime, um, so these are sentences in which people were condemned to death or long prison sentences, hmm. um, being, quote-unquote, guilty of things like treason or... Um, or um, disloyalty, or um, or um, things like that. Um, all those sentences sti- are still on the books. Um, they have never been annulled. So that oh, um, wow. it, it's for family members of um, men and women who were imprisoned under Francoism for belonging to a union or for fighting with the Republic during the Civil War. Um, those family members still know that their grandfathers and grandmothers and granduncles and, and great aunts are still officially listed as traitors to the fatherland or as as criminals, and um, and that's 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 a big deal. Um, honor nice. is a big deal, right? Yeah, yeah. So the fact that these sentences have not been annulled is an important issue. However, annulling the sentences opens up in Pandora's box because that then. Um, uh, opens the door for these families to maybe sue the Spanish state Uh-oh. and sue for reparations. The um, the law of historical memory that Spain finally adopted that, yeah. 12 years ago in 2007 uh-huh. provides for some monetary compensations, the compensation for people who spent time in jail or in concentration camps or in other ways suffered the consequences of, of the Francoist repression but nothing of the sort of reparations that could come out of a lawsuit. Right? If you if you have to spend 15 years in jail, then that's to translate that into monetary damages is, is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so there's there's all kinds of ways in which the Francoist the legacy of Francoism um, forms something like a foundation of the country's current economic structure. So there's. If you look at Spain's corporate and economic elites, a lot of the wealth currently existing in Spain was accumulated, or the basis of it was accumulated during the Franco regime. A lot of infrastructure, uh, even a lot of corporate um, uh, um, structures and and, um, corporate wealth was accumulated through, for example, the use of forced labor um, the the the, the uh, employment of re- political prisoners. So, for to open that Pandora's box would open uh, the corporate and economic elites, as well as the political elites, up to a whole series of complicated questions that they're not really willing to face and that they would prefer to ignore. Wow. So there's there's all kinds of ways in which dealing with the legacies of Francoism. Um, even for the center-left, is a complicated um, issue that uh, that is not necessarily something they're willing to engage in. Yeah, when you're talking about money, I mean, how many thousands of family members are there still who whose uh, ancestors, uh, you know, as you say, were, were punished in jail or, or killed? Uh, that's... Right. Wow, that's that's a tough, tough. And, and 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 I mean, you you talked about the the, the rise of these um, 
of the extreme right in Europe and yeah. these questions being historical memory questions still being quite relevant to the present, to the political present. Of course, we have to say that the same is true in the United States. So the discussion about what to do with Confederate statues in the South, mm-hmm. uh, the question of reparations for yes. slavery, mm-hmm. are really not all that different from the questions that Spain is facing, right? And, and um, just like in Spain, the, the political establishment, even on the left, is often quite hesitant to go in that direction, right? Because it complicates things tremendously. Um, and um, and it's true that the American Civil War and the American uh, and, and, and slavery in the South um, happened longer ago yeah. than the Franco regime, which which really was in power between 1939 and 1975. But the questions are really, in broad strokes, very similar. And um, there there's plenty of ways in which um, countries can learn from each other in these issues, right? And there's plenty of ways in which um, even those of us who, who want countries to engage with these issues can benefit by uh, connecting them across borders. So there's interesting ways in which um, Spain's, um, the question in, one of the questions in Spain is how can Spain as a country come to terms with the past through the use of public spaces, through organization of a museum, through um, education in public um, high schools, let's say, right? Well, those are also issues that the United States continues to grapple with. If you think of Brian Stevenson's um, project in Montgomery, Alabama, the Equal Justice Initiative, their memorial to lynching and the history of of slavery, uh, the legacy of slavery, um, Brian Stevenson has said that he is clearly inspired by, for example, what Germany has tried to do with its complicated Second World War past. And in turn, a country like Spain can look to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and say, well, this is one way that you can organize in a, in, a, in a very pedagogically productive way a public space that teaches visitors how to think about these complicated questions of guilt and complicity and the legacy of the past and um, economic consequences and psychological consequences and demographic consequences, just like in the South, the South, the, the legacy of lynching, lynching mm-hmm. implied huge uh, demographic um, displacements from the South to the North, right, to the urban centers, to Chicago sure. and to Cleveland. Similarly, in Spain, the Franco regime caused the displacement of tens of thousands of, of Spanish Republicans who ended up in Mexico, in the United States, and France as exiles. So there's all kinds of interesting ways in which these connect, which doesn't mean that they're not politically uncomplicated, these issues, and, mm-hmm. and don't lead to very uh, difficult discussions that often don't have a, an easy resolution. On the other hand, you can say, well, just engaging in the discussion yes. is valuable in and of itself. Well, it is, and and, you know, I mean, history is, of course, written by the victors. And, you know, the, the victor was uh, the fascist Franco, and now those days are gone. So who writes it now? And, and as we've seen so often, what's crucial uh, for many uh, powerful interests is the erasure of uncomfortable history. It's, it's essential to erase 
that stuff in history that that is not comfortable and trying to you know bring this to the fore now i can imagine there would be a lot of people saying oh let's just forget it it's too painful it's too complicated but it's really important to to face history and and face ourselves and and go forward and it's uh you know you you can't leave it behind it's not even behind us so how this uh election is is coming up in november how what part do you think this current uh, controversy uh, will play itself out in that election, or is it not... uh, How big of a deal is it? Honestly, I don't think it will be that big of a deal in this election, just because the other issues at play are so important. Uh, Spain continues to face uh, high levels of of social inequality, um, uh, high levels of unemployment. Um, The question of Catalonia is... at the forefront of everybody's minds, it looks like that same Supreme Court that made the decision that Frank is body, another section of it, but the same court, will, um, in the next week or two, will come down with a sentencing of the Catalan politicians and activists that have been imprisoned ever since the, the, the uh, referendum for, self, for independence two years ago. That's a big one. And uh, that sentence is, is, according to analysts, expected to be very heavy. Um, they're talking about sentence up to 10 or 20 years in prison for oh some of these politicians. And that is going to be so, uh, is going to have such an impact in, on, on, on the way that uh, Catalonia thinks of itself within this structure of the Spanish state and of the, mm. that the Spanish state sees Catalonia, that I, I think in the elections, um, no. This particular issue of, of Franco's body is not going to be very prominent. Another important question in Spanish politics today, as in the rest of Europe, is what do you do when Parliament is so fragmented that the only viable uh, majority, that, that you can only form a parliamentary majority by uh-huh. through coalitions of different parties? Spain has not been used to that structure. Spain, uh-huh. since it, it became an rocket in the 70s, has for a long time had um, close to or absolute majorities of one party in parliament, so it's had basically oh. party government, huh. unlike other countries. Like I'm, I'm from the Netherlands, and there we've always had coalitions, so we're used to that. In Spain, it's, it's a newer idea that there's so many parties in parliament that each have a share of the pie that the only way to for any government to actually be viable and to have a majority in the parliament is to m- merge or to have different parties joined together in the government. Right. Well, the negotiations for that have be, have proven incredibly complicated, almost impossible. And it's very much the question whether the, election, the elections in November will yield any different results or will make that those coalition negotiations any easier. The problem is that as long as there's no coalition um, that is viable, the country, in effect, doesn't really have an, a viable government. Yeah. And so all these urgent tasks that remain to be addressed that have to do with unemployment and with the environment and with Catalonia and with um, social justice and uh, creation of employment, all those things continue to be in the back burner because there's no actual legitimate active government to uh, deal with them. Oh, my goodness. Well, that may be (laughs) better than some uh, dictatorial government, but the question of you know what to do with with uh, Franco's body and the memory, the memory of Franco. I would think is, you know, it's important to, to perhaps 
bury fascism? That would be a nice thing to do. I don't know how possible that may be. And, but I, I would think what we're talking about here is taking a step to uh, put fascism in a different place in, in Spain's identity right now, or a, a better place. Well, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Sebastian Faber. It's always interesting. And, uh, of course, uh, keeping those uh, 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 Catalonian leaders in jail for a long time would create martyrs, and we know how that works in, uh, in politics as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Bert. It's great to be with you. An old Spanish freedom song. Viva la quinta brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la, viva la quinta brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la, que nos cubrirá de glorias, ay Carmela, ay Carmela, que nos cubrirá de glorias, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Luchamos contra los moros, rumba la rumba la rumba la, luchamos contra los moros, rumba la rumba la rumba la, mercenarios y fascistas, ay Carmela, ay Carmela, mercenarios y fascistas, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. El ejército del Ebro, rumba la rumba la rumba la la otra noche el río cruzó, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. La otra noche el río cruzó, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Ya las fuerzas invasoras, rumba la rumba la rumba la Ya las fuerzas invasoras, rumba la rumba la rumba la Buena paliza le dio, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Buena paliza le dio, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. 